anybody there. Hey, Jaime, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. How you doing? I'm good. How you doing? Oh, pretty good. So let's let's uh, get the ball rolling here. Could you tell me a bit about where you come from and uh, uh, what your origin was like, if we can begin there? Oof, my superhero origin story? That's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm Spider-Man, dude. Um, <laughs> no, actually, I am Spider-Man. That actually was not a joke. That's um, awesome. So, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll explain. So check this out. So Miles Morales, you know, the, the, the black Spider-Man? Mm-hmm. That character was created in uh in uh, about 2011, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. I I love that character. Uh, so the writer who created him, uh, Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, I'm a huge fan of Brian Michael Bendis. Love his writing. I especially love his dialogue. Um, I don't know if you've read any Brian Michael Bendis or you know mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. that that world of comic books. Um, he's a comic book writer, deeply prol- prolific. Um, and one of the things I love about him is how on point his dialogue is. He really clearly does his research into how different people of different age groups, of different generations, of different cultures, of different neighborhoods, how they actually speak. Um, and he brings this to his comic book writing. And it's just brilliant to behold um, for like the past at least 20 years. I've been reading his stuff. And um, uh, his skill set really reminds me of like Richard Price. I don't know if you've ever read a, you know, Richard Price novels. You know, I mean... Richard Price is just a dialogue master and Brian Michael Bendis is like super close to that, but he writes in, in the comic books realm, right? In this, in this medium that for so long, you know, up until recently has not been taken that seriously. Anyway, um, not to ramble too much, but just going on and on about how much of a fan I am of Brian Michael Bendis. So I ran into Brian Michael Bendis when I moved from New York to the Pacific Northwest. Mm. And, um, and I ran into him at Powell's bookstore um, in, uh, in Portland, Oregon, which is one of my favorite places in the world. And one of the uh, one of the reasons that I, I haven't left Portland yet all these past twelve years, and um, I said, "Hey, sir," and he uh, he looks up at me and like he's like, "Yeah," and I'm like, "Hey," uh, I was like, "You know, you you just created Miles Morales. I I gotta tell you something, and I'm sure you've heard this before, you know, but that really means a lot to someone like me." He goes, "Go on," and I say, "You know, I'm I'm a half black, half Puerto Rican kid who grew up in Brooklyn," um, and he cut me off right there, and he was like, "Whoa." You're Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the, uh, that's the, and it was just like the best thing ever, man. Just Brian Michael Bendis who created these characters and wrote all this stuff saying, you're Spider-Man. I'm like, yeah, man, that's me. Oh my so goodness. To your question, yeah, it was, it was super cool. Um, it's also just super cool when you meet these people, these great writers and these great artists, and they're so approachable and so human and um, fundamentally good. But yeah, to answer your question, yeah, I'm a half black, half Puerto Rican kid who grew up in Brooklyn. Um, my father, uh, my father, who unfortunately passed away last year, um, he was, uh, I'm still getting used to referring to him in the past tense, um, but he uh, he was a black man from Guyana. Um, and my mother uh, is uh, a Puerto Rican woman um, who grew up in Brooklyn and Puerto Rico. Um, so they met, uh, you know, in New York. Because uh, New York is that melting pot, and a lot of different people from a lot of different places meet and have children, and mm-hmm. and, and make us uh, us uh, us biodiverse uh, uh, offspring. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's the uh, that's that's kind of the simple overlay of my parents' uh, history, you know. Because if you ask somebody where they're from, then you got to get to where their parents are from and where their parents that's are right. from. But you know, as a as a my father, as a black man from Guyana. He had an interesting perspective on things in general and an interesting experience because he was a uh, he was he was, I guess, what people nowadays will call unambiguously black. Right. Simply because mm-hmm. of his 
He was a large, you know, powerful six foot, 200 pound, very dark skinned black man. But, you know, it, it, it gets deep when you start peeling away the layers because, uh, you know, this man was, was somebody who would be defined as black, you know, and he came to this country when he was five years old. He lived his, his whole life in this country and he had the experience of a black man in this country. Um, but you peel back the layers because he was from Guyana. Just as if, if you peel back the layers of a lot of black people, quite frankly, you start digging up a little bit more. So my father was Muslim um, and he raised he raised his children uh, Muslim. So that's another um, strange aspect of a p- positionality that that gives me uh, growing up. And uh, he only found out in his later years because he, uh, he, he, he reverted, as we refer to it as, he reverted to Islam uh, when he was in his teens. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there, there were some issues there with his father. So there were a lot of things he did not know about his father. He did not find out until he was a grown man, until he was in his 30s, that his, uh, his father was Muslim. He didn't even know that. Right? Oh, wow. And his father was Muslim because of the tradition that came down through the East Indian heritage, right? Because Guyana is an interesting country. I don't know if you know much about it, but you know the people who live there are uh, this great mix of um, of the descendants of African slaves. But when slavery was abolished and the British who colonized uh, the, the region, you know, uh, when and if I'm telling you anything, you already know. Feel free to cut me off. But uh, oh no, go ahead. Yeah, when they um when when they needed more labor, uh, they started bringing in indentured service from East India, and that happened all across the Caribbean and all across the West Indies. That's why you have, you know, that's why a lot of West Indian and Caribbean cuisine involves curry, right? Mm. So there was that whole mixture there. And then my mother's Puerto Rican, and uh, you know, Jaime, I looked up your background a little bit, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it said that you were Mexican American on your website. That's right. Yeah. As you know, being Latino, that 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 comes with a whole you know mix of things. <laughs> yeah. You got it from both sides. Exactly. So a lot of mixture on both sides. Um, you know, my, my, you know, basic level, my dad was a, was a, what they would call an unambiguously black man living in Brooklyn, even though he wasn't so unambiguously anything when you dug into it. And my mother was a, a Puerto Rican woman, predominantly European descent. Um, so then here comes me and, and my siblings and we look like everything. And then I took a, a DNA test recently and I, I come up literally across like just about every continent. Um, <laughs> you know, so. <laughs> interesting so that's the racial aspect of where i come from then there's the class aspect right so i grew mm-hmm. up in brooklyn um i grew up in brooklyn at flatbush um, which was a predominantly uh west indian community at the time it still is uh, predominantly caribbean predominantly jamaican and haitian um a lot of guyanese like my father a lot of guyanese were attracted to that area for a lot of reasons and i was born in 1980 man so i, I grew up in the 80s which was a bit rough growing yeah. up in a working black neighborhood in the 80s as you know that's when the crack epidemic was in full steam um mm-hmm. And, you know, there were a lot of things to deal with in the 80s and, and early 90s. Um, a lot of people have a you know, sort of a colorful idea slash ideal of the 90s, especially we're seeing that a lot now in pop culture. A lot of people are going back to the 90s for inspiration, for music, mm-hmm. for fashion, uh, for, for ideas around multiculturalism and all these things. And I'm like, a lot of this stuff always is looked back on with nostalgia. I'm like, those things were there in the 90s. There was a lot going on in the 90s, though. The crack epidemic was still carrying over until the early 90s. And the early 90s were uh, like the most violent period internally of American history. Mm -hmm. Uh, People forget that. And in New York specifically, those were the most violent years between 1990 and 1994. So mind you, this is when I'm in the age of 10 to 14, right? Yeah. This is the most violent period of New York City history. People often think New York violence in the past and they think the 70s, maybe, you know, because mm-hmm. of all the movies that you see out there. But um, it was it was the early 90s. Um, there were there were approximately a little less than 2000 homicides a year 
um, each, each year, you know, between 19, you know, 1991, 91, 92, 93, um, right around 94, you, you, you see like 1,800, 1,900 homicides a year. There was a point um, around 1990, I want to say 1993 slash 1994, mm-hmm. um, getting my statistics here because it's seven in the morning, um, but it's right <laughs> around that period, right around that period where there was almost, because of all the shootings, uh, most of which were gang related, um, again, being driven by that crack epidemic, by the drug epidemic that was um, uh, tearing through uh, black and brown neighborhoods in New York City and through mm-hmm. urban America at that time. Um, in New York City, in that early 90s period, there was a point where there was approximately one person a day getting hit by a stray bullet. Wow. And you, you could look that up. You could look up that statistic. And um, I believe it was 1993 um, that was happening. So, you know, so that was that was my background growing up sociologists, psychologists are only starting to understand now in the past really few years, the effect of this type of violence, the effect of this type of trauma on black and brown communities in this country. People are starting to realize that, hey, you know, PTSD rates are just as high among black and brown men in inner city America as they are among war veterans. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, when you take a step outside, like I did, Every day you step out and you're going to school and you know, hey, I might not come back home. <laughs> wow. You know, because you hear the news, you hear what's going on around you and you may not fully understand it. You may not have a full perspective on it when you're 11, 12, 13. Um, but you know what's going on. You feel what's going on. Right. Right. You know, that 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 has an effect on people. So that's that's where I grew up. That's how I grew up. That is. That, thank you so much for providing this context, because I think that it shows I believe in this because I, I think we need to know where people come from and we need to be fairly open about our background to to illustrate some things. But how does a kid deal with that? Do you remember some escapes? Yeah. yeah. What what were you doing at the time that made you feel like you could run away from this this experience? Okay. Yeah, my escape was reading and writing. Um, my escape was comic books, man. I loved comic books. Any comic book, man. My favorite was Daredevil. You know why I like Daredevil? Yeah. Because Daredevil was this dude who who grew up in a rough neighborhood. <laughs> this was the brilliance of Marvel comic books, man. This is why I get a little uncomfortable when people kind of rank on Marvel comics and they, you know, they start ranking on the movies. And I'm like, you know, I, you got to look at the history of, of these comic books, especially when you start getting into Marvel mm-hmm. and how these comic books really were always from the jump, always from the beginning, representative mm-hmm. of marginalized voices. Yeah. yeah, and I could go, I could ramble about that in a second, but I want to answer your question. <laughs> um, yeah, so the escape for me was was comic books and reading. I loved I loved reading. I, loved, I read everything. I read everything I get my hands on. I had that background, you know, growing up as I uh, explained to you before in a black and brown community. But I was very very deeply lucky in the fact that I did not have the stereotypical, uh, you know, broken household as they say. Uh, mm-hmm. My parents, um, you know, were very stable in their marriage. They always stuck by us. My father never left. My father was always there. Um, you know, he was there with, with, with my mother and, you know, his six kids and he was always there for us. He was always providing for us financially and emotionally. It's always there. The man was always there. And, um, and as a result of that, um, you know, he was always working Man was always working. So he was a teacher and he was an English teacher. He taught English and social studies to GED mm. students. So we had a lot of books in the house. So, you know, we did not grow up. We grew up in a one bedroom apartment in Flatbush. Me and my parents and all my siblings, there was not much space. <laughs> um, but it, it did not matter because we, we always, we always ate. Uh, we were never hungry. Dad made sure that we always had books. Um, and my father, um, he picked up on my love of reading real early. Um, and he started kind of doing certain things to kind of tweak that, right? To kind of ge- to generate and to encourage it further. 
Mm-hmm. So when I was young, um, I don't remember really learning how to read. I was kind of always reading. Um, according to him, I started kind of doing some real basic reading as early possibly as three or four years old. Um, so that was a big help, uh, you know, in my life and in my writing. But he would have me. I remember when I was like four or five years old, he would say, hey, circle all the nouns and uh, draw, draw a rectangle around all the verbs. <laughs> Things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that those, those little basic exercises start getting you thinking about sentence structure when you're five years old. Right. Um, you know, or, or he would he would he would make me write a book report for everything that I that I, that I read. Oh, wow. So I hated I hated writing book reports. <laughs> so but 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 what it would do. So he would always say, you know, write a three page book report. And what we had, what he made me do was a book report bank. Oh, um, what, what's that? A book he was, uh, so, he, so on the on a bookshelf in the living room, I, there was there was a stack of book reports. So that any time a book report at school was due, I was already ahead of the curve. <laughs> so so all I had to do was pull a book report out the bank and hand it in for an assignment, and I always got an A plus plus. Oh man! <laughs> and um, but but you know, but then he was always like, okay, you took one out the book report bank. Now you got to put one back in. You got to keep your savings up, right? Mm. So every book I read, he made me read. He made me he made me write a book report. It was always a three page book report. And um and I hated it because um I always I loved reading, but I I would I would I would slow down on the reading. This is why I'm a slow reader to this day. Mm. I was slow down because I didn't want I didn't want to write the book report. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I would take my time right reading reading that book and then uh finally I'd be like, oh I gotta write this book report. But in writing the book report at a young age again, you know, we're talking second, third, fourth, fifth grade, I have to critically analyze what I just read. I have to summarize the plot. I have to look at what the basic plot points are, what those turning points are, what that narrative structure is, right? Mm-hmm. All these things are already starting to get embedded in me at a young age. Um, so that was my escape. And because of, um, of uh, you know, having a very good father who was very uh, deeply active in his children's education, um, that laid the foundations for me, you know, finding a lifelong love and passion for for writing. Yeah, that's that's amazing to have a figure like that in your life that sort of ushers you maybe prods you a little bit along the way to uh to go to the right direction but it seems that he recognized that it was all built in right that you were going to be drawn to that naturally so did you start writing that early on too or was that something that came later in life for you i did so um so i you know i my dad and this was the this is how i knew i was going to be a writer my dad one day told me don't write a book report he said write your own story <laughs> now the book reports that i used to write were like three pages and they were they were like every every word was like pulling teeth and i would do little things where like i would like uh, i would write like just up to the margin to try to get to the to the next line so i could just get through that three pages you know and this is like you know this is like you know back in 1988 i'm writing on loose leaf paper you know um and i'm you know this isn't typing this is there's no word count it's just you know right right you know i would make sure that i i didn't use the college ruled loose leaf paper you know, I, I did every little hack and cheat that I could to get. You <laughs> use wide ruled. You know, yeah, I learned real quick. Use the wide ruled loose leaf paper, man. I'm not in college yet. Don't don't use that college. Don't don't use the college ruled loose leaf paper, man. So, <laughs> so so I'm writing on the wide ruled paper. You know, and I'm just I'm just get through that three pages. Then one day he said, "Hey, man, you know, write write your own story. Go write go write your own story." Mm-hmm. You know, like I'm like, what? He's like, whatever you want, right? You know, why don't you try it? Do you remember what that story was? Yeah, I wrote some. I mean, it wasn't very good. Obviously, this is the very first thing you wrote. It was. It was basically a ripoff of Indiana Jones. I loved Indiana Jones, right? Mm-hmm. So I had a group of people like traveling over to Egypt, and they were going through the pyramids, and then they like encountered this, uh, 
you know, some like mummy who came to life and then they were running away from him. And I think there was even, <laughs> you know, there, there were probably like a few large objects rolling, you know, like the big stone. <laughs> big from boulder Indiana. or whatever. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, but it was 10 pages long, man. I wrote it and I didn't, and I was not cheating on the, on the workout. <laughs> I was just, I was just going at it. And my dad was like, wow, you know, and he could have easily just, you know, I mean, everything about it was derivative. Right. Mm-hmm. But he was just like, he was just like, wow. He's like, you got to keep doing this. And that's mm-hmm. the first time. So I, and even up until when he passed away last year, one of the last conversations I had with him, he told me, he said, Yakub, he said, I'm sorry, I was Zephaniah, you know, keep Zephaniah is my pen name. He said, uh, you know, keep going, keep mm. doing you. He said, I'll never forget. He said, my man, you can write, keep writing. Oh, man. And, you know, and I, I, I hear that voice all the time. So, yeah, oh, that's beautiful. And, I, you know, I didn't get a chance to tell you earlier. I'm sorry for your loss, but I hope that um, that you're coming through and, and healing in some way. My goodness. Yeah. That sounds like a wonderful man, a wonderful person. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, uh, you know, everybody. Everybody's experienced some loss in their life, you know. As I'm, I'm, I'm sure everyone has. I'm sure you have. You know, I, I'm sure as you know, it's uh the, the grief is um you don't ever get over it. You know, yeah. there's nothing. You just learn to live with it. Um, yeah. But you know, the funny thing about learning to live with it is, um, you know, I, I hear his voice all the time. I really do. I hear him I, every time I get up in in the morning. I hear him telling me like he did when I was young. He, you know, get up, let's go work out, let's go train. You know, cause he raised me boxing too. You know, and oh, I was cool. you know, <laughs> yeah so you you know dude wasn't just a dude wasn't just a scholar he was a warrior too you know and he raised me that way and, uh, mm. you know yeah, i hear his voice every day you know get 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 up do your work you know no no, oh, no whining you no complaining you know and i hear that voice all the time yeah that spirit you know it you know as you get older it's like you start to realize like i don't know nothing man <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah. i really don't like I, yeah. nobody knows nothing out here's one thing we know i was just thinking about this yesterday when i, I my back hurt man i was like i'm 42 years old and i'm feeling it and i and i heard my father's voice man get up and get moving you know and i got up so let me go do it you know even if i can't do a full job let me do let me do a fast walk you know i got up i walked over to the track that's about a mile and a half from my house and i was thinking about just this man and i was like you know we don't know nothing. No. We know one thing. We know one thing that all this is temporary. That we are going. Mm. We are going to die one day. That's the only thing we know. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. it. Don't know nothing else. Absolutely. That's the only thing anybody, anywhere, in any culture, any any race, any color, any background, anything can say with absolute certainty that nobody else would be able to disagree on. Mm-hmm. All you can say is we're going to die. Yeah. You know? Now, what do you do with that information? You know, you write like you, hell. <laughs> exactly. You know, do, do, do you find your purpose? Do you, yeah. do you treat people with kindness and with respect? You know, knowing that this is it, you know, right. Um, you know, do you try to be a good person? Do you try to make the world around you a better place? Do you try to be kind to people and, and help others? You know, that, that's it. It's the only that's way to be. Got. Yeah. Exactly. So let's take a look at A Crime in the Land of 7,000 Islands, which is a work that is, that is just coming out or has it come out already? So it is, it is forthcoming. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, so as of now, it should hopefully uh, be coming out in the UK at the end of this month. Um, and then it will be released in the United States in March, uh, March 7th. So it's already available for pre-order if anyone's interested. Um, basically, wherever books are sold, uh, which is good. Wonderful. And um, yeah, man. So it, it, it should hopefully be coming out soon. And, uh, you know, we'll see what happens. Absolutely. But hey, that's a big congratulations. I mean, it, you know, getting it out there and, and getting the publication is, I imagine, a huge, huge effort on your end that you had to put together. So can we backtrack a little bit and, and talk about yeah, that yeah. process of 
figuring out why this was the right story for you to debut with and and what that writing process was like for you. Yeah, yeah. So I don't know if it was the right story for me to debut with. I didn't really, I didn't, you know, I, I've been learning about this writing game as I go along. And it's, it's a funny game, man. So I, I, I didn't really realize so recently, like people really plan their debuts. It's really like a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't plan nothing, man. I just wrote. Um, <laughs> and then I, and then I submitted and it got accepted and I didn't even, I didn't even bother uh, submitting it to any large publisher. Um, I just, you know, said to myself, I, you know, I just want to get it published and, um, and, uh, and I'll just keep writing after that. If people like it, great. Um, and if people don't like it, you know, no big deal. I'll just, I'll keep writing anyway. So how did the story come up then? If we go back even further, um, what was the origin of this particular story? Well, um, the story is about a, uh, an FBI agent, a harrowing case crosses her desk, um, that case. And I have to put out a bit of a trigger warning. The story does involve, and what I will talk about, uh, does involve um, uh, crimes against children, mm-hmm. uh, abuse against children, uh, uh, particularly sexual abuse, uh, which is very, um, pretty harrowing, pretty horrific stuff. And uh, case crosses her desk, and she has to take action. Um, she ends up getting, she ends up getting that call to adventure, right, where she now has to um, travel uh, to the Philippines. Uh, she's got to travel from from Oregon to the Philippines. Uh, in order to go help bring this case to a resolution so that justice can be served um, against an American individual who traveled to the Philippines to sexually abuse children over there. Um, so to give you a bit of uh, sociological context, um, this is more common than people realize. Mm. So Americans and uh, you know people from Western countries, as we call them Western, you know whatever that means, because we're on a globe, so I don't know what's West and what you keep going West, you just end up East. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, we know what we're talking about here. So when we say Western countries, um, mm-hmm. oftentimes, uh, you know, uh, partake in, in, in what American statutes refer to as child sex tourism. Um, and uh, countries that are deeply affected like this, uh, well, they always tend to be countries that are, are impoverished. Um, you know, so a lot of this stuff uh, touches upon uh, class and sociological differences, right? Um, you know, people don't. A lot of people who haven't traveled outside of the country don't realize how how drastically different the cost of living is elsewhere. So let me just put this out right now. Um, this this story was based on some direct experience, and I won't go too deeply into it because that gets into my. Uh, I like to keep my writing life and my other professional life separate. Sure. Um, but I will, what I will say is that, you know, I, I, I have traveled to the Philippines um, in a professional capacity um, where I was involved in, what I would say is where I was involved in, in investigating crimes like this. Mm. So I, I have traveled to the Philippines as an investigator. Mm. So I, I have lived through the course of carrying out an investigation like this, and it's, it's pretty harrowing um, to, mm. to go. And, um, and yeah, it's pretty sad. Uh, you know, so for example, at the time, and I don't know what, um, you know, it's like now, but at the time, you know, this is the time that I was over there is a few years ago. You know, you, you go to the Philippines and let me remember the, the exchange rate. If I remember correctly, it was uh, 50. Okay, I can't remember the exchange rate. Though, so but it was though. a lot, right? It, it must have the, been. The difference, I mean, it's like you can, like a family could eat for a month on a few American dollars, you know, especially when you start traveling out of the tourist areas, you know, which I had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and you start going to more remote areas that are removed from the metropolitan uh, regions like Manila, right? Mm-hmm. And you start going out, you know, remember the Philippines is 7,000 islands. 
Um, so there's some things going on here. Okay. And I, I and I, I have to say, I'm not, uh, I'm not Filipino or Filipina. I'm not, I'm, I'm not Filipinx. Um, I, I do not speak uh, for Philippine, Filipinx people or, or Filipinx artists. Um, there are a lot of wonderful, and I love how much uh, Filipinx voices are, are proliferating, mm. you know, uh, and, and I, I encourage people, you know, in order to get more information, go to the source, go to those voices, go to those artists. Um, you know, I'm just pointing you that way, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, but I can only speak through my experience. But, uh, you know, it's 7,000 islands. Um, you go out to some of these more remote regions, there's abject poverty. What for an American is a few dollars for, for you know, some of these families in, in these areas. You know, a whole family kitty for a month. Mm. So now imagine, um, you know, here comes some American, uh, you know, with 20 bucks. Man. Right? Yeah. See so what I'm going with this? Feel like um, a king, right? You feel like exactly, this. Yeah. Exactly. And then the problem is if they, you know, if they are an individual who is, you know, um, who unfortunately likes to um, have that type of uh, contact with children. Um, and they go to a child and they say, hey, uh, kid, here's 20 bucks, but I want you to come to my hotel room with me. Mm. Well, poverty will make people, um, especially people who are not, you know, children are not fully developed individuals, right? Uh, right. Logically, emotionally, um, you know, and people, and sorry, I'm getting a little emotional talking about this because it's, mm. yeah, it, it's just. Uh, I thank you for sharing this experience here and I can't imagine the toll that it takes on a human being to to have to parse through a lot of that even having a bit of proximity to those things has to be so harrowing so emotionally taxing that I I really got to thank you for what you do first of all because it's so important um but I want to thank you for telling this story too because these are things that are so difficult to talk about, but to fashion it in a way that can be approachable for people to understand that this isn't something that that happens in a faraway land. This is something that, because of the interconnectedness of our world, this affects everyone. Exactly. And we can't just turn a blind eye to it. So, you know, just to get this out of the way, thank you for this book and thank you for the work that you've done to try to make the world a better place. Because this is horrific. And I can't imagine that it's been easy for you in recent years to deal with that. Yeah, no, I mean, well, first off, thank, thank you. Um, you know, I, I always get a little uncomfortable when people say, oh, this, this, must, this must be so harrowing for you to have, have been through. And I'm like, I, you know, okay, yeah, but think about what these kids went through. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, and it's yeah. like that, whatever I went through ain't nothing. Right. It ain't nothing. And it goes back to, you know, what I said about, you know, my father's voice in my hair. Every time I get up and I feel like I'm playing or I feel tired or I feel a little achy. It's like there's just people out there who are going through stuff. It ain't nothing. Mm -hmm. It ain't nothing, you know, and, and, and the pain that people go through, you know, it ain't nothing with what them kids got to go through. So, you know, so I'll, I'll, I'll get up and I'll do the work, you know, and um, no, no, I, I do it again. Um, I do it all over again because um, like I said before, we're all going to die. So what are we going to do with that information? Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. what, what, what are we going to do in the time that we've got here? And if, if there's anything that I can do in the course of my life, in the course of my duties, um, to make the world a little bit of a better place, at least a little bit, you know, even if just a few people, especially kids, right? Right. Yeah. So in terms of the story here, it seems like it, it had been welling up inside of you to tell it. Did you struggle writing this or did the, oh, the draft yeah. come quickly? 
How did this unfold so, for you? Yeah, no, good question. I, I hadn't written for about 10 years, man. So a long, long time ago in a previous life when I was in my early 20s and I was younger and uh, more energetic and, and probably better looking, um, <laughs> I, I was a teacher. And um, so I've always kind of gravitated toward doing something that that helps kids. Um, I, I was a teacher, and uh, but I didn't really like teaching. Um, I, I taught public school, um, I t- but the, you know the public school system is um, is challenging, mm-hmm. and it wasn't it wasn't the best place for it wasn't the best place for early twenties Zephaniah. And yeah. and early twenties Zephaniah still had these romantic ideals and romantic notions around becoming a writer. So I actually quit my job teaching when I was about twenty three, and. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, and I started writing a lot, and I actually wrote screenplays because I thought I was gonna, um, you know, write a huge million dollar selling screenplay and become a famous. <laughs> um, none of my screenplays went anywhere, um, but I did write several screenplays. I wrote about five, six screenplays, and uh, none of them went anywhere. Um, but it did teach me the basics of narrative structure, um, and that's something you know, just kind of like I, I mean, I. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not some some mentor or some, you know, I, I just got one book coming out, you know, and I'm, I'm nothing big. But what I will say, if anybody cares about any advice that I would put out there for writers and people often say, hey, look at different mediums of writing. So if you write novels, look at poetry, if you write poetry, look at, you know, short stories. Mm-hmm. I would tell everybody, look, look at screenplays, you know, take, take right. at least one, take at least one screenplay writing class because screenplays are they distill the story down to the to the bare necessities. You, you got to get everything in 90 to 120 pages of very sparse um, you know, wording. Um, and it, it's, it's really good training ground to, to learn how to tell stories, but regardless, um, and then you can, you know, and then I know there's also other issues around, well, I don't like three act structure. I don't like the Western narrative. <laughs> I want to do that. And that's fine. You know, I mean, yeah. I, I'm just saying you, you, you go and you learn and then, and then after you learn all the rules, break them or, or throw the rules away. Great. You know, right. but it just gets you learning a, a certain thing and you know, nobody has to follow my advice. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm not anybody. I'm I think not it's, anybody. No, I mean, you're spot right. on. I think it's excellent advice. And I say this as a playwright, you know, which is kind of adjacent to that, um, that really strict screenwriting structure. I think that's what makes me feel like everyone should take it because you'll decide if you need the scaffolding or not. You know, you can definitely get rid of it uh, if you if you don't need it. But for long form, like a novel, I mean, that must have really come in handy for you as you were building yeah. this. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So good interview, man. You put me right back on pace where I needed to go. <laughs> um, no, you did it, man. You, you did. Yeah, man. So exactly that. So I had stopped writing for about 10 years um, because after my screenplays didn't go anywhere, I needed to go back to work. So I went back to teaching mm-hmm. um, and then I kind of jumped into my uh, current profession as an investigator. And uh, uh, yeah, I just too busy, um, too busy, right. you know, oh, yeah. working you know the stuff of life you know make, make, making those making those rent payments and then those mortgage payments and yeah. you know just being a you know doing that adulting thing right right um so uh i didn't write for 10 years and you know and it was always you know so mm-hmm. then i had then i you know i had this 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 case that i worked and I, I went to the philippines and i did this work um and that uh gave me a lot of experiences and again i, I gotta you know again put out this caveat i, I you know um, please, you know, people, anybody who reads the book, anybody who enjoys the book, please, please go pick up the, the mass amounts of Philippine X writers and writing and art that is out there. Um, you know, I, I really, you know, it, it, I, I, I cannot represent Philippines, the Philippine X stories, the Philippine, you know, it's just, it's just one person's experience over there. But I, I went over there and when I came back, yeah, it was just, there were a lot of emotions. There was a lot of things to process. Um, mm-hmm. and you know, like with all artists, there's, there's a little bit of that 
you know, subconscious, unconscious flow. And I was literally, you know, sometimes I was just daydreaming and these words just started coming to me. They, they came to me like just words, um, you know, yeah, yeah. once upon a time that, you know, <laughs> was like, I mean, I, I wish I had my old journal in front of me because I, I, I remember one time it hit me so hard that I sat down, I started writing the words, you know, and it wasn't too far from the prologue, which was, you know, always remember, daughter warriors do not apologize. Warriors hold themselves accountable for the consequences of their decisions. So now that the time is right, I will tell you that story of the things you must know. There is a land which takes the crossing of several oceans to reach a land of many, many islands. And that just came to me. Um, and oh, and those first few sentences in, in, in the book, um, you know, they're there. I, I don't have the exact sentence that I wrote when I first wrote this down, but it's not too different. Um, there's maybe a word here, a word there that was tweaked, but, you know, it's pretty much the same. And, and then the story just started coming to me and um, I had to, um, the emotions of the experience, you know, kind of flooded out and then I kind of had to put them in a, in a form, in a, in a container, right? You know, I had yeah. to kind of figure out the narrative structure and I had to figure out the characters and I um, mean, I changed the main character. I, I didn't feel, I didn't want it to become one of those. The last thing I wanted to be was a sort of like, look at me, look at what I did. Yeah. Because it's not yeah. about me, right? Mm-hmm. It's not about me. Um, like I said before, you know, yeah, it, it's harrowing, you know, undertaking an investigation like that. But if it's harrowing for the investigator, what's it like for the victims? Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I can't, um, the last thing I want it to be is, is be about me. So I had to remove myself from the story a bit. Um, and I did that by creating uh, fictional characters. Um, and I felt, I strongly felt that the main character should be a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and she ended up being a, uh, uh, her name is Ikigai Johnson and she ended up being a, a female FBI agent. Um, who's half black, half Japanese. And that came to me because I actually know um, mm. a half black, half Japanese female FBI agent. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So I kind of, um, I kind of modeled the character a bit. Um, not, not entirely. This is deeply fictional. Um, but I modeled the character a bit of, out of my interactions uh, with, with that, uh, that mm. woman who's, who's a wonderful woman and a wonderful human being. And, um, and that's how, and then I just started really fictionalizing drawing. I, I also did it as fiction because it was like, I can really have fun. Um, yeah. and you need to have a little bit of that fun and that play, especially right. because the topics and the, it's, it's so heavy and so harrowing, yeah. um, that I need to play with form and I need to play with fiction. I need to play with characters right. and it'll, make, it'll also make it readable so that people will not just be, you know, hurt, you know, you, you want sure. people to so you want, you want it to be accessible and, and for people, you know, so that they can learn about what's going on out there. Um, Absolutely. And I'm curious of the workload that you have in, in your day to day. I mean, I can't imagine that's got to be some pretty tough stuff here, but I'm always fascinated by the idea of the creative as a human being who's part of the community. You know, we we have stuff to do. We we have jobs. We have responsibilities outside of the craft. Yeah. And I wonder how you managed your writing work along with your professional career, because that sounds exhausting. I mean, it sounds like you, you need to be on a hundred percent of the time. How do you save a little bit for the end of the day or the beginning of the day when you are sitting down to have fun and to try to vent a little bit and create a work like this? Hey, I'll be truly honest. When I wrote this book, because remember now there's always this delay between when things are written and when things are getting published, right? Mm Mm-hmm. I, the process of writing this book actually took place between 2016 and 20, 2019, 2018. Mm. Um, at that time, especially when I first write it, wrote the book, um, uh, you 
I'll, I'll be a little vulnerable here. Um, I I was I was a, I was a bit alone and a bit lonely, mm. uh, and I was not necessarily in a. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was a hard point of life, mm-hmm. um, and I didn't really have much going on um, in terms of, of a personal life. So um, all I had was the book. Um, so I went to work, and then every spare moment that I had, I was working on the book, mm. which is not healthy. Okay, I need to make that very clear. That's yeah. not that's not you. You should not have the work and and then just your writing. That's not a healthy thing. At the same time, however, um, the book kind of saved me a bit um, because it gave me something to focus on and something to create. Um, and in doing that, it helped me get through a rough patch um, mm. and helped me kind of start expressing myself on the page. And as a result, helped me come out of my shell a bit and, you know, start going out and, and meeting people and, and socializing and, um, you know, uh, interacting with the world again. Um, so I'm in a much better place now. Um, I got married a few years ago. Um, oh, congrats. And, and thank you. And things are very different now. Um, <laughs> as my wife makes sure of that. Um, so, so circling back again, is my long rambly answer to your question. Um, at that point that I wrote the book, um, it was, it was really, it was work and then it was the book and that was it, which isn't it was productive, but it wasn't necessarily healthy. Now, um, you know, and I'm, I'm actually, um, I, I got a, a book deal with another independent publisher to publish my next two novels. Um, mm which I'm looking forward to. And those novels are very different from the first one. Um, so I'm, I'm working on it and I've already ri- handwritten the first draft. So I'm now typing them up as a second draft. And I'm going to be submitting that to the publisher. And I'm going to go through the editing process, you know, all oh, that. Beautiful. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's work. And then it's, you know, I, I, I take whatever, I, I make it a point to just, you know, at least an hour a day, even if it's just 45 minutes, an hour to just sit down and, and write. Um, and then, yeah, you, you, you got to schedule and you got to be disciplined. And, and, um, but that discipline also includes, um, other healthy aspects of, of your life, your relationships, your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your spouse, with other people, with other things. Um, you got to do that, you know, writing and the craft is just one part, it's just one slice of the pie. It's not the whole world. It's not everything. Um, you know, you, you got to make sure, um, that you exist as a healthy individual, because if you don't, um, then, then your writing is not going to develop either. Um, and 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 i think that takes a little bit of uh takes a little bit of discipline um i mean different people do it different ways for me personally i can only speak for myself for me personally it, it, i approach it with with discipline and that you know looping back full circle to what i talked about at the beginning of this conversation that comes back to my father and the way my father raised me mm-hmm. he raised me in a very disciplined manner um mm-hmm. you know not not a uh, not a strict suppressive manner but discipline in terms of get up in the morning you know, figure out your day. How are you going to spend your time? How are you going to spend your life? You know, what are you going to do? Um, you know, and, and approaching it with that sort of, you know, clean, clear focus, mm-hmm. um, you know, is kind of, is kind of how, at least for me, you know, the people have their, their ways, but for <laughs> me, that's how I, that's kind of how I approach my writing and how I approach my life. Oh man, that is so beautiful. And I think you covered so many beautiful insights for people who who want to actually get the job done. And I really think that this podcast is geared for folks like that who are looking to make that first step. And I couldn't have said it better. It couldn't have been articulated better. So I want to I want to thank you because I think that's going to be a really good note to end on. I got one more question for you. Yeah, um, absolutely. How about um, because it's it's still January and these are the first episodes of the year for me. I'm curious if you believe in 
intentions or or resolutions for the year and if there's something that you want to achieve for your craft this year yeah yeah i I do believe in intentions and resolutions um i've read up and studied i've studied that a lot um what i will put out there again i'm I'm nobody i'm just some dude right so whoever listens to this has to just take the pieces that work for them and just you know completely disregard what doesn't right but for me what i will say is 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 there's a caution that needs to be approached with things like intentions and resolutions um because we tend to hold to them too hard and when you hold to something too hard well it's not an intention anymore right Mm. i think people got to remember um and i always have to force myself to remember this and my wife always forces me to remember it um that you can have an intention but the whole the whole purpose behind an intention and the the trick with intention and with resolution is that you have to be detached from it Mm -hmm. so i'm very cautious with with intentions and resolutions um i like to put things out there but then you got to remember it's like okay you put it out there and that's the trick you know you you put it out there with all seriousness um but you don't hold tightly onto it um you know that's 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 kind of a hard thing so so yeah so i I definitely have intentions and resolutions um you know in terms of of my craft and where i want to be and I'm not mm-hmm. going to talk for, for once this interview, I'm not going to ramble about it too much <laughs> um, because because I don't want to hold on to those intentions and those resolutions too hard. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not even going to talk about it. Right. Hey, that's but they that. are out there. But they are. I have put them out there into the universe, you know, uh-huh. and we'll see and we'll see where they lead. You know, we'll see what happens. And, that uh, sounds like a plan. I think that's yeah, wonderful. Man. So, uh, <laughs> Zephaniah, I really want to thank you for so much that you've shared with us today. I think that. I mean, I, I have so much gratitude for you for this work that you've written, which is so necessary. Um, even though, I mean, there's there's going to be a wild ride along the way and we're going to get a good read out of it. I think that it is something that we need to address, that we need to continue to talk about. But I also want to thank you for the work that you're doing in your many professional careers. I think they're they're doubly important and that work deeply matters. So Thank you for all of that and for bringing representation and paying it forward in a way to, to get this. I, I just got the sense that to have those moments where you, you become Spider-Man and you pay it forward is so rewarding as a, just a, a bystander to know that you're out there creating these works that, that really advocate for that and, um, and give us hope for tomorrow. So I, I really got to thank you for that, man. Hey, thank you, man. I, I think you give me too much credit. Um, like I said, I'm I'm just one dude. And I'm just one dude out here in billions, just living his life, just you know, just trying to do what he can do. Um, thank you, thank you for being you. Like I said before, thank you for doing the work that you do. Um, this has been a wonderful, beautiful conversation. This has been really, this has been like the perfect start to my day. I'm really glad we did this. Oh man, that's awesome, and mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you. your time so early in the morning because that was the the most jerk thing I could do to you is wake you up at nah, man, it wasn't eight o'clock in the morning, morning or whatever. <laughs> yeah, man. No, it, no, man. That was a good trap to fall into, man. Thank you for setting the trap. All right, man. Sounds good. Well, <laughs> next time, if we get a chance to chat down the road, you know, when when some of your other work comes out, please let me know, and I'd love to catch up on how you know you've led many lives, and of course, the filmmaking part of it. You know, we just scratched the surface on so many things, but hopefully, down the road, we can uh, catch up and continue where we left off. Oh, absolutely, man. You just you just let me know what works for you. All right, man. Sounds like a plan. Thanks again for your time. I hope you have a wonderful Sunday and I'll talk to you real soon on the internet. Okay. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful day too. All right, man. You too. Take care.